Well, hello and welcome to the next episode of Edible Futures. My name is Hilary McNevin. I'm the founder of Turnip Media. And on behalf of Turnip, with the support and help of Worksmith, welcome. And I'm thrilled to say that this episode is produced in partnership with Mount Zero Olives. And I'd like to welcome our guest, Gerald Diffie from Gerald's Bar in Carlton North, or is it North Carlton? Welcome to Edible Futures. Thank you for having me. Gerald, you have firstly congratulations on your recently published book, Thank you. if I may. So, Beggar's Belief, Stories from Gerald Bar, Gerald's Bar. Is it your first book? Yes. <laughs> Will it be your last book? Should we go there yet? <laughs> How was the process of writing it? Um, I started writing about 10 years ago. Um, yeah. And um, it came out of the idea of that all the all the paraphernalia that lines the walls of the bar, or everything has a story to it. Yes. And customers are always asking, you know, what's that all about? Da, 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 da. And I just thought, I, you know, to give the backstory of 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 the collection, if you like, would be interesting. Um, but then, of course, you know, when you start to tell the story of a, an old enamel teapot, you know, you go back <laughs> four generations and you have to tell the story of yes. that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go down a rabbit hole and the stories just start to flow from, from those, in, you know, inanimate objects, really. So it was a rabbit hole that you were very happy to go down. But, you know, it was it. Did every object evoke a particular type of story that you just didn't want to overlook? Yeah, I mean, um, whether the whether things were souvenirs or um, from a time and a place. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a. I mean, you know, my love of vinyl, and it's like I can remember pretty much everywhere I bought every piece of vinyl. Wow. And um, and and every time I pick up, you know. A record, uh, you know, I'm transported back to that place, and food is exactly the same. Yes, um, food memory, mm-hmm. um, palate memory, and uh, and and also that you know these, um, whether it be like a teapot or a plate or or a poster or a piece of art, they they have a story that's part of my story, and uh, and um, so these are the stories that I tell. It's a Beautiful collection of stories that I find some are funny. There's beautiful cooking ideas. I'm not on commission, everyone. I just have really enjoyed the book and we'll talk more about it. But one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you today on Edible Futures is that we obviously talk about what's, what lies ahead. And hospitality is very much part of you and who you are. And I wanted to start at the end, if I may, if you don't mind, there's... One of the set, one of the parts of short of story in the book is called "What It's Really All About." You talk about in forty years of hospitality work, I've done eighty hour, years of hours, twice the working week of normal wage earners, limited holidays, no weekends, and you say I'm not alone. In fact, I think for the career restaurateur, it's the norm. The depth of depression in our industry in our industry is only now being identified. And perhaps our obsession for perfection is fueled by this very real but repressed need to be loved. There lies the rub. The obsession comes in equal measure with the failed relationships and hospitality bereaved. The scars on your children from your broken marriage are as real as the scars on your fingers. And you can't just get them sewn up on your break. Indulge me, Mr Diffie. I am also a hospitality person who, whose marriage to a chef ended 
And yes, I have a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old who, who have, are the children of a broken marriage. And that is always often, as you would know, with your three children, part of a conversation. Where do we start in addressing the, um, the emotional toil and measure it with the joy and love and obsession of hospitality? Where, where do we go to hopefully not have so many broken marriages? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I don't think I was answering any questions when I wrote that. It was just a statement of grief uh, in some ways. Yes. Um, but it's um, – I, th- I suppose when I was writing that, I was saying, you know, is is our, you know, quest for perfection, is that is that a reality or are we sort of uh, – are we looking for something else? I mean, people talk about passion and perfection and everything else and it's like, well, you know, real passion and perfection is – you know, being at home with your kids, isn't it? I just think being successful uh, in hospitality can be a bit of a ferric victory. Yes. Um, uh, and we all struggle to find that balance because, you know, I mean, hospitality is so intense. I mean, you know, if the phone rings and you've got two staff down with COVID, then um, you just go to work. You yeah. just drop everything and you go to work. Um, and, uh, and Was it as intense before COVID though? I think it's always been that way. Mm. I think um, it's there's, there's a certain sort of analness about everything being just right, mm-hmm. and and nothing seems to uh, matter other than everything just being just right. And on the way, then people, family, friends do get overlooked for events of and course. things like that. Of course. How do you, how have you over the years justified that to? And tell me if I'm getting too personal. That's okay. Too, um, two family and friends. How how have you worked? Or have well, I haven't been... I fucked it all yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> have you really though? I think in a lot of ways, you know, you look back on your life and go, uh, if I'd have done things, if if I'd have taken that week's holiday, you know, um, would things be different? You know, mm-hmm. if you know, would you have? I mean, I'm very happy with my life. I mean, you know, mm. I'm. Um, I've got three beautiful children and three be- beautiful grandchildren mm. and two uh, uh, two step uh, children and um, a dog and three rabbits and you know um, <laughs> it sounds beautiful and a, and and a very tolerant wife. wife. <laughs> um, but um, work is still um, all encompassing. You know, um, I kind of think that when you're a small business owner and it is really the small business owners that you know feel it the most. Um, that's a, that's your that's your livelihood. That's all you've got. Is there any way that it can be less relenting? Um, well, I've never found any tools um, <laughs> to make that. I mean, good staff. I mean, yeah. you know what it comes down to is is you're only as good as the staff. Yes. Um, they're at the coal face. Yeah. Um, they represent you, and if they represent you well, then you can um, you can step back. You have a um, wonderful business partner, Mario. Yes. Um, could you do it? W- would you recommend anyone, because that's one of the reasons I really, you know, we, we want to talk to people in the industry, but also people who want to understand how hospitality works in general. Could could you do what you do without a business partner? Um, I, well, you know, I mean, I've had several business partners and most of the time it ends badly. Mm-hmm. Um, Mario and I have known each other for 30 years and um, when he came into the business, um, it was a huge fillet. Um, we understand each other. Um, 
we challenge each other um, and we both bring things to the business that are different. Yes. And um, and we don't always agree, which I think is, you know, healthy. Um, in some ways, you know, we are – we're very close friends, but we're not best mates. So we, you have a balance we, of – We respect each other and each other's opinions. Yes. And, and of course, we're very close, but um, um, it's it's a beautiful balance between my crazy ideas and his rationalisation, mm-hmm. um, and um, and um, and you know we have a lot of tolerance for each other and a lot of respect. That's wonderful, and that that's how a business. Uh, partnership really works. There's a wonderful part in this book where the two of you are talking about well, how many hours did you spend talking about asparagus? Yeah. <laughs> and it's about three. And how many did we talk about, you know, the, the P&L? And did you? No. So is there that kind of – my point being there is such the creativity necessary to keep a hospitality business going as successfully as yours has needs that three-hour asparagus conversation, I believe. Yes. Um uh, I think it's, I mean, a good business relationship is 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 about an ongoing conversation about everything. Yes. Um, you know, I'm not great in the office, yep. um, and um, and Mario is, um, but equally, Mario is uh, he's a, as a trained chef, he um, has a much broader understanding of food than I do. Yeah. And we riff off each other in that regard. So yeah, it is. It's just you know, it's all about communication and it's all about ongoing. Where do we want the business to go? Mm-hmm. You talk about um, also looking in at the beginning about the net curtains and you can't control what's going on outside. You can only control what's in. And um, I wonder, do you feel in restaurants now and into the future in the COVID world we're in, do restaurants need to do that more and stop looking out for attention and saying, look at me? And do they need to just look at what's on the table and their customers and yeah, I mean, um, it's only my point of view, but um, uh, you know, Gerald's Bar is very much Gerald's world. Yep. And and it's my um, my sort of vision of what I would like mm-hmm. in a place. Yep. I just you know, and um, and and Mario is very much of the same mind, and you know, so we're creating our own little world, and we don't really. We don't really care much what goes on out out in the rest of the world, mm-hmm. but I will say that you know um, I'm not a great fan of you know over designed shiny designer concepts. Yes, I, I'm. I come more from the soul rather than you know the marketing department. Yes, and um, soul, I, I think is is. Clearly, clearly, where you on which you build your foundation. Tell us a bit about where you came from and how, where the soul came from. Um, I was born in the UK, um, and my earliest memories are of um, being deposited with my grandparents in the in the countryside. Yes, where my great uncle and the family had had a had a pub for a, a hundred years, a very old stone and flint. Thatched, roofed, gorgeous country pub. Yep. There was very spit and sawdust, but um, wow. just very agricultural. Um, but I absolutely loved it, and mm-hmm. it was it was um, it was a fantastic old 
ruin, if you like. <laughs> Did you work with them in there? No, I was only very small. Okay. Um, so, you know, I used to sit in the tap room with a bottle of pop and um, <laughs> watch my great aunt skin rabbits. And um, and it was, yeah, it was very down-to-earth sort of world. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, but it's, you know, I can't walk past a brewery when they're brewing <laughs> and that smell, that sort of yeast biscuit smell mm-hmm. um, transports me straight back to that cellar oh, as wow. a five-year-old sitting on the cobblestones. Um, and that's that sort of food memory um, is something I explore in the book. Mm, most certainly. But I think it's very important. And when did, for, for those who um, haven't read the book yet, but um, t- tell us a little bit about your in going into hospitality and finding yourself here in Melbourne. Um, I started off in pubs um, and uh, graduated to restaurants and uh, opened a little coffee shop in my hometown and then um, came to Australia, cycled to Australia. Um, why did you cycle to Australia? Why? Yeah. Couldn't afford the airfare. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. So I thought, well, how do I get there? I'll ride a bike. Well, did you go with a friend? Uh, my girlfriend at the time. Yes. Um, we cycled through Europe and then took uh, the train through Russia because mm-hmm. it was uh, still communist at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we cycled through China down to Hong Kong. So How long did that take? A bit over a year. Wow. Worked in Hong Kong because it was still British. Yes. And then um, flew to Thailand, went round Thailand, down through Malaysia and Ireland, hopped across Indonesia and ended up in Darwin. Was And Australia was the destination because it was on the other side of the world or well, because... we had a working holiday visa. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll get And we there. both stayed. What happened in Darwin? How did you go from Darwin? Did you ride a bike from Darwin to Melbourne? No. Okay. Hitchhiked. <laughs> this is great. In the days when you could. <laughs> yes, my brother used to hitchhike a lot. So, and what happened when you got down here? Well, we actually came down to Adelaide and um, got a job at the Fringe Festival bar. Yeah. Um, and all the acts that, you know, this is 1990, mm-hmm. all the acts were that were playing at the um, at the Fringe Bar were um, from Melbourne. There was a Doug Anthony All-Stars and mm-hmm. Jerry Connolly and um, several other. Um, Miss Dorothy. Can you tell us a little bit about Miss Dorothy? Well, it was a bloke. Good on him. Yeah, good on her. Yes. Very manic comedy. Very, very manic comedy. <laughs> Is Miss Dorothy still around? I've no idea. Oh, now I'm going to be Googling that after this. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, mixing with those guys, they just said, well, when this is over, you just got to come back to Melbourne. Beautiful. And you know, I walked down Brunswick Street and um, got a job at the Gypsy Bar. A good old Gypsy Bar, Brunswick mm. Street, Fitzroy. Mm. So, and so – and. It, Rest is history. Started connecting. Started jumping into things, and oh well, look. I mean, Brunswick Street in 1990 was, you know, amazing. I mean, everyone was creative. The bar was full of filmmakers, artists, you know, drug dealers, prostitutes. Yeah, the and, band, bands and would it, play at the Punters Club. Is that yeah? And yeah. Um, there were several venues, and there was stuff going on. And you know, there was always a gallery opening. There was always a film. There was always a party to go to. Yes. Um, and it was a really creative time. It was a time that after the Newhausen report in the uh, late 80s, um, cafes got licensed mm-hmm. and, you know, cafe culture exploded mm-hmm. in Brunswick Street. Yes. Um, the Black Cat. Did the Black Cat come over around then, I'm thinking? Just the to Black give Cat people was context. already open then. Okay. Had been. Um, Mario's um, and then Rumbarella's. Yep. Um, who And they had 
the gallery upstairs and um, it was just a really great creative time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it broke the uh, it broke the sort of mon- monopoly of the pubs. Yes. Um, um, good pubs are always good pubs. You know, the Standard was kicking and yeah. um, and the Punters Club and, uh, you know, lots of live live music venues around. Um, but it was the rise of the ca- of the licensed cafes that, you know, sort of broadened into a much more European-style culture. Seeing Melbourne that you arrived in, and might almost be too broad a question, and the Melbourne you're in now, when you say it was a creative time, what would you say the time hospitality and bars and restaurants are in now? I mean, immediately, um, you know, hospitality is in crisis because there is no real job security for young people. Mm. Um, I think before COVID, we saw, you know, a lot of um, the so-called wage theft stuff going on. um, We saw that um, so many people in hospitality were on casual employment. So when COVID did come along, they all lost their jobs. Yes. And so many of them either moved up to Sydney or Brisbane and a lot of the other people just drifted out of the industry to find other work that was more um, stable, if you like. Mm-hmm. And we're not really offering any uh, incentive for young people to come into the industry. Well, that was going to be one of my next questions. And then how do we make this industry appealing? Going back to the beginning of our chat about... It is relenting on unrelenting on families. It's emotionally difficult. Where and how how do we make this industry? Because it's a beautiful industry. When uh, is it about small businesses and more businesses like yours that are run? Well, I think I think it comes back to the employees. I think the the very the, the simplest answer to um, this crisis is for front of house um, to be recognised as a trade. Thank you. How do we do that? Because I, when well, do we start campaigning? <laughs> well, I mean, just as we have an apprenticeship for for chefs yes. and cooks and a very regimented, uh, you know, moving up the chain yes. from from a commie to a boxes to tick, tick. and things to and, achieve. And yeah. they, there's there's set wages for set positions. Front of house has none of that, and um, I don't see that my trade is any different to a carpenter or a plumber or a bricklayer. Yes. Um, and yet uh, there is no recognised um, qualification. In Europe there are waiters apprenticeships, yes? I believe so, um, especially France initially, um, mm-hmm. less so in the UK now. But um, what COVID has, has shown up is how much we do rely on uh, backpackers. Yes, travellers. Travellers, yeah. uh, visa holders, that sort of thing. Um, and I think hospitality in Victoria with tourism is about the third biggest employer. And we're relying on untrained, unskilled labour to fill those positions. And, uh, of course, young people can do better. They can. And and is it difficult to run a successful business because we are in a city where there is an expectation of a dining audience where... we They know their shit, most, a lot of people who dine out. They, want, they don't want unskilled no, labour. No, absolutely not. If, how, where on earth would we start in terms of government to get something like a waiter's apprenticeship or a recognition or a certificate of some kind? Where, where do you go? What do you do? I think it's, um, there's been a lot of sort of private TAFEs that have run little skill yes. courses. Yep. Um, and they're not really recognised in the industry because they're kind of taught by 
you know, people that are, you know, are not up to the minute with what it is. Yes. And, you know, young people go and do a, you know, a bartending course where they're, you know, sort of, it's very outdated. I think if, yeah. if training has to come from the shakers and movers in the industry. Yes. You know, we need to actually put, you know, our best people in the classroom teaching young people. Yep. And um, and I think, you know, f- from my, I don't think you can you can expect government to understand how hospitality works. I think um, what we've got to do is is look to ourselves um, and the talent that we've got within the industry, and mm-hmm. then w- with a framework of a private TAFE, yes, um, induct people so that they are going to go through a, a traineeship or apprenticeship, whatever you like, and they're yes. going to come out with a recognised qualification at the end of the day. And that yep. qualification is equal to the, what they get paid. And then yeah. we don't have an argument about between employer and employee. It's like mm-hmm. you've got a ticket, you're worth this much money, and that's the end of it. Is that a desire from across the industry? Have you talked to other restaurant owners, people like, you know, people, the, the movers and shakers in the industry, are they interested in that kind of thing? Yeah, a lot of people um, that are sort of at my level, mm-hmm. um, you know, employing 10 to 20 sort of people mm-hmm. uh, uh, are very much of that mind because small businesses like mine rely on the fact that the customer is going to see the same faces day in, day out. Yes. That recognise them, know their name, know what they drink. Yep. And that is a very important part of our service. Yes. Um, in perhaps much larger establishments, it's not so important because you know you're, yes. you are serving a multitude of people. But in in local small business, mm-hmm. um, a friendly face is really important. So yep. I I don't want to turn my staff over every six months. No, I mean obviously not just for the the cost of it. The staff are very much a fabric of the of the business, and um, and we want we want staff to be able to have a career in hospitality mm-hmm. and, you know, buy a house one day. Yes. And, you know, get a good super. Yep. And cradle to the grave sort of idea. Be financially secure, really. Be, that's be what financially <laughs> everyone, secure. Yeah, um, it's as simple um, as that. S- security in their work, security yes. um, in their finances and um, and then that benefits all of us. So I guess in, in a way it's about keeping that conversation going and open and Almost letting young people know it's an option, whether that's through high school or some sort of TAFE. I don't know. I'm just trying to think. Where's the key? Where's the key to open that door to get it? The con- you know to make the conversation broader. Because I'm very passionate about waiters. I did it for many years too, and it's a skill. And you learn from people who've you know got more experience than you, and and you pass that on. And detail and care and love and obsession. They're all part of it. It's important to translate that to a young person, though, isn't it? Yeah, and I think um, I think there's a lot of kids that you know university really isn't for them, mm. and you know especially more creative types. Yes, and I don't think see anything wrong in the idea of leaving school at sixteen and going into a hospitality apprenticeship. So it's about maybe getting into high schools and yeah, I mean, showing them graduate high school, go into something, and at sixteen you can really teach. Yes, and by the time they're eighteen, they can you know be in a licensed premises, but you know. You can, you know, the young people are still learning. 
Yeah, right. and they're sponges. And if it's like yeah. this, here's this is actually a qualification that I can use and take when they can travel again, take around the world, and if they wish, yep. set up a small business. I wonder if we'll see when you um, see more in the future of restaurants and hospitality, see more small business. I sort of touched on it before, but I'm wondering if the architect designed sharp, minimal concrete. <laughs> Of which you are the antithesis, you know, if they will have to, and 200 seaters and things like that, we don't have the staff for a 200 seater. We're, we're, I wonder if small personal restaurants will be the future of hospitality. I think, um, I think that small places uh, are great. Uh, I think specialisation is the future. Um, take, Jap- take Japan, for example, you know, you're yeah. going to a tiny little izakaya. Or even, you know, in San Sebastian in Spain, you'll go to a restaurant that only serves anchovies. Yep. Um, and that's what you go there for. Yes. Um, that's sort of been stymied a little bit because of the um, uh, the uh, distance control of COVID measures, you know. Yes. You know, small, small businesses, you know, you know, that only sit 10 or 12 people and having only being able to sit two or three people is obviously... Yeah. Um, ridiculous, yes, uh, uh, unviable. At the same time, the two hundred seaters are su- suffering because they don't uh, can't possibly get the staff to to service them. So that, I don't know, somewhere in between, I guess. Yeah, There's no, it's, it's it is a crystal ball but question. I, do, I, do, but I, I honestly do believe that specialisation is is the way to go for hospitality. I think yes. uh, after two years of trying to bake sourdough, you you, you really don't mind paying ten dollars for a good loaf now because yes. you realise how bloody difficult yeah. it is, <laughs> and you're not going to do it at home. And um. <laughs> And people have stayed in their suburbs and explored their suburbs and it's become much more neighbourhood. Yes. And I think what we'll see is more neighbourhood places opening up that are just, you know, little two-handers that specialise in something interesting. I like that. I think that that's hopeful and practical and hopefully viable. Just tell us a little bit about how you've been operating in this space where it's January 2022. I was about to say 21, 22, and, and we've got Omicron in Melbourne. And how as how have you how does the business operate at the moment? Um, I think what's what's um, what's difficult about operating at the moment is there uh, is no more um, relief from the government in yeah. state or federal, um, and yet our business is still interrupted. Um, like we're at half capacity inside mm. um, and of course like last week we had three staff who were down with COVID and that's half my front of house staff. Oh that's hard yeah. So we are in fairly strict restrictions without having JobKeeper or any of the benefits that the government was able to help us out with two years ago. And I think that's going to really bite a lot of businesses. I was going to say, do you think this it, it will be the year of the telling year? Some, it's, it's going to be very, very hard, I imagine. Yeah, it's sort of a shadow lockdown. Yeah. And also a lot of our older people aren't coming out yep. because they're terrified. Um, young people are very resilient. They want to, they want yep. to come out. That's all good. Um, we are very busy because so many places are closed. Right. Um, but... It's a day-to-day scenario. A day-to-day uh, that proposition. And do you have you have outside dining and indoors? So do you tr- are you usually full outside? Do you fill up those chairs, those seats first, or how do you well run a service? Of course, um, we are in Melbourne, um, and it's very weather dependent. <laughs> you never know. I mean, um, we always look at it and go, "Well, we've 
if it starts to rain, where are we going to put these people? Yes. So that's 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 another challenge. Throw Um, another layer on it. (laughs) um, But being restricted inside, yes, we we use the outside as much as we possibly can. That's beautiful. People are more comfortable outside as well because the fresh air and yeah, it's something we're all seeking. Gerald, we're almost coming to the end of our chat, but I wanted to ask you. I lo- I, the recipes in here, they're beautifully written. Yeah, I just I love a recipe that chats to you. What are you enjoying cooking at the moment? And what's a recipe in here you would recommend, if I may ask too, because they could be two different things. Like today, what's good at the restaurant? What are you enjoying? We are serving a lot of seafood at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's a great time um, and there's really good supply. Um, yep. And um, so I... We cook a lot of we're cooking a lot of seafood at the bar and a lot of cold dishes as well because yes. sunshine, lots, you know, prawns, oysters, that kind ceviche. of ceviche. Yeah, beautiful. Um, um, Chef made a beautiful gazpacho the other day with uh, spanner crab. Um, <gasps> what would you drink with that? Uh, that's an interesting one. Probably like um, vadeo. Beautiful. And what about the book? What's a recipe in there that you liked? I love the fish soupy. It was a fish recipe. And I loved – there's a beautiful description of a seafood meal that you had that I was actually there. I could smell it and feel the air and the sunshine and the little lovely mermaid yeah, suggestion that, at the end. And that's, uh, it was a bit of a love letter to my wife, that yeah, story. Um, yeah. um, I really like um, the uh, saffron saffron um, soup. Yeah. Well, it's a sauce, of, halfway between a soup and a sauce. Yes, just with a pig, nice piece of um, like blue eye, roasted mm. with poached egg. So, do you want to throw a drink in with that as well? I want the poached egg. Yes. Yeah. Well, when the egg breaks, oh. it, it enriches the uh, the sauce, and it yes. and it just works. And I love eggs. Eggs are right through the book. Yeah. No, I've noticed that. I love. I'm a big egg fan Fish too. Yeah. Beautiful. Life can't get much better than that. Gerald, um, we have hope. We keep going. We the industry. Will shift and change, but um, will it still be at its core run by people who have obsessive love for looking after people and making people happy? Yes. I mean, I think that's that's why um, there hasn't been an awful lot of government intervention into hospitality other than a bit of assistance. And I think, you know, this whole training issue is something that, that no government really wants to no. um, deal with. And the reason is, is... Small business in hospitality is so resilient and is yes. so passionate and is so um, pig-headed that um, they won't go to the wall. They'll no. just keep working. I love it. Pig-headed is a beautiful description, actually. Stubborn. Stubborn and passionate in, and drive and determination. Yeah, I, I mean, think if, we'll you, keep if, us if, going. if we were in corporate Australia, they'd be closing up businesses left, right and centre. But, yeah. you know, we are our businesses. Yes. You know, you know we can't the key. give up. No, we can't. Gerald, where can we find your book? Um, it's in all good booksellers, <laughs> um, particularly readings in yes. Carlton and around. And published by Melbourne Books, may I say? It's Melbourne beautiful. Books. It's, it's obviously available through the, the online sellers, but yeah. um, available at the bar and, yes. and all good bookshops. And we're Gerald's Bar. Gerald's we're, Bar, 386 Rathdown Street. <laughs> Gerald Diffie, thank you so much for being with us today on Edible Futures. Pleasure. And thank you for joining us today. It was a really great chat. Please get the book. I'm not on commission. 
It's a beautiful read. And um, on behalf of Turnip Media and Worksmith and also our partnering with Mount Zero Olives today, thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to What's Next. If you enjoyed this and would like to find out more about what an edible future might look like, be sure to jump onto your favourite podcast platform and subscribe.